Good morning, everyone. Today I'm reading from 1 Corinthians, verses 12, um, chapter 1, sorry, chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Um, and that's on page 931 of the Church Bibles. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or another, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. Well, friends, uh Week three in the Holy Spirit series keeps getting more interesting every week, and um, I'm glad you're here to hear God's word and to uh, allow God to speak to us. Uh, I must say uh, a little bit of background: in the 1980s, I regularly attended uh, what we called uh, Pentecostal Charismatic meetings. Uh, I saw people fall backwards; the language was slain in the spirits, uh, speaking in strange tongues prophesying, interpreting of um, the tongues. I attended Baptist charismatic conferences. We used to have them back then. Uh, John Wimber Knights, he was a leading uh, charismatic leader. Uh, even events where word of knowledge is what they call word of knowledge was shared. In fact, my beach mission leader was the leader of the charismatic renewal in the Anglican churches in Sydney. And so I often got invited along to things like renewal meetings. Uh, I often visited with friends the, uh, what was called then the Christian Growth Centre, uh, I think it was what it was called at Sutherland, then changed its name to uh, Shire Live, now called Horizon Church, with a number of friends. I witnessed what were termed prophets prophesying in a tongue, in a service where people would then stop, and an interpreter would then, you'd wait for an interpreter uh, to, to try and interpret what was being said. The interpretation, I must say, was always very general, normally about praising God. Uh, I had no idea whether the interpretation had anything to do with the word in tongues, um, but there you go. At the end of the service, ministry time would happen, and people would be invited to the front after the sermon for ministry time, uh, for those who wanted to speak in tongues or to receive a healing of some form. As I uh, trace the history of some of these gifts and the phenomena uh, in, our, in our modern age, Speaking in tongues was big at that period. A little bit later, the words of knowledge became big. You turn up to church to, to have a word, a direct word from God. A little bit later, prophecy became big, and you had a word from God. Uh, it sort of moved through like every decade, there was a new big thing. 
Then, uh, if you remember the Toronto Blessing, uh, where people would uh, fall over and laugh and be exuberant and all types of noises and so, so set it with that. And that started to move across the world out of Toronto. Uh, then healing and deliverance became even larger as a phenomenon. And then uh, prosperity teaching uh, also became a phenomenon where you just believe God and God will give you um, what your heart's desire is. And I guess we have elements of all of those things that are available uh, in the Christian world today at different levels, some I would say in a balanced way, some probably not so balanced. Now the Bible mentions a variety of gifts uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 1. They're gifts like leadership, helping, giving, serving, teaching. But today I'm going to focus on what may be called the more spectacular or more some people call more supernatural type gifts, as if leadership and helping is not supernatural, uh, but something that is seen as a little bit more supernatural, a little bit, you know, a little bit out there, for Baptists especially. Um, and they come out of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 11. But before we come to those gifts, let me uh, briefly state the purpose of spiritual gifts. They are given for the common good, we're told, given for the common good, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Uh, they are distributed by the Spirit as He determines, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. They are given to produce maturity and stability in the church, Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. And we're talking about all the gifts here. They are given that God might be praised, 1 Peter 4, 11. For the common good, the Spirit distributes for the maturity and stability of the church that God ultimately might be praised. And one of the things I would say to you is don't chase the spectacular but utilize the gifts that God has given you for His glory and for the good of His church. But let's have a look briefly this morning at these gifts in verses 8 to 11. The first one, uh, and I've grouped them two gifts together here, the message of wisdom and the message of knowledge. To one there is given the spirit uh, or the message of wisdom or the logos, which is the word, that's what it means there, the word of, uh, word of wisdom, to another, the message or logos of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. Difficult to distinguish two gifts, which is wisdom and knowledge. People with these gifts, though, seem to enjoy a special experience of the Holy Spirit. We're able to bring spiritual insight, I think it's what we're talking knowledge or wisdom, into a situation to be in a timely fashion to help maybe God's people in a specific context for the good of the congregation. So sometimes God will give you wisdom, discernment, and some knowledge. You think, I think this is appropriate for our church now. I think maybe God is saying this to you now. As I, informed by the Word of God, by the way, informed by the Word of God, uh, some people have this special wisdom. Now, we're all called to be wise, aren't we, as Christians? We're all called to have knowledge of God. But it may be that God gives a specific gifting at a certain time for some believers to help others. But further, let me also say, one, uh, in light of 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 and following, wisdom can be essentially doctrinal, because the wisdom of God is the message of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So it's not just, well, I discovered something, and uh, it can be fundamental mental message of Christianity, the message of Christ crucified. And see also Gordon Fee, as a charismatic leader, speaks about that. Now, although we all seek wisdom and knowledge centered on the Scriptures, some people have a special gift. And maybe you know people like that. 
you go to them for counsel because when you go to them, they just seem to have the wisdom or the knowledge to, to guide you and to lead you in a, in a direction. And some of you may have that gift, you may know others who have that gift. But unfortunately, I'll have a few unfortunates in this sermon, I'm happy to debate it with you later, if you don't agree with my unfortunates. Um, Unfortunately, the word of knowledge gift took on a whole new dimension under the charismatic leader, the late John Wimber. John Wimber died about 25 years ago, and I heard him speak at the Randwick Race Course, um, just to, to hear God's word, to see what God was doing through these uh, new teachers and prophets. Uh, and I attended a number of meetings where people were looking for what they call a word of knowledge. So it wasn't just wisdom and knowledge from the word and to encourage us, but it became this, like this, you look for this supernatural word, this supernatural uh, wisdom. The singing uh, was followed by a sermon, then there was ministry time. And that was a bit everyone was waiting for, and I also went to a church on the North Shore, and I was just waiting to see what would happen, because one of these experts in the word of knowledge was there, and I went, wow, I wonder what will happen. Because uh, I was happy to test things out, right? Happy to test things out and see what, if it's of God, or, or is it not of God? And the expert, then, what, expert uh, Christian then waited to receive a word of knowledge up the front, just waiting and sensing what is God saying to them. It's almost like... Uh, almost like a magical thing. And then we're waiting for him to have a specific word, and he said, oh, I've got a pain in my back. Does anyone have a pain in his back? Half the congregation put their hands up. We've all got pains in the back, right? I try not to mock this here, but... And he said, well, God sometimes gives me a word for you by giving me that same pain. I was so disappointed. I thought, I'm coming here to hear someone who's received from God to bring something, and, some, and then he has a sore shoulder. So anyone have a sore, sore shoulder here? And they, they played this thing. It went for an hour, and after a while, I thought, I've had enough of this. This cannot be what the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom is in the word of God to bring. It's almost like playing with people's emotions and their, their hopes and their drives. But I'll tell you one example where I think the word of knowledge, maybe the wisdom, was available. Take Acts chapter 5. Remember when Ananias and Sapphira lied to God and to the Holy Spirit? And they, brought, they sold, said they sold their property and brought all the money to God? And they didn't. They kept some back for themselves. And Peter says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, that's a word of knowledge. That's an insight that maybe God has given them that, um, where they... They had another conversation, I don't know, but clearly from God. But often, in my experience, that they made the word of knowledge and wisdom what is, ought to be centered on the word and truth and God's bringing encouragement into almost this magical thing, trying to find something. Secondly, faith. To another faith by the same Spirit. Well, firstly, this can't be a reference to saving faith, because all true Christians possess saving faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But it is a special gift of faith. Gordon Fee writes again, it is probably a supernatural conviction that God will reveal his power or mercy in a specific way, in a specific instance, or to be firmly persuaded of God's power and promises to accomplish his will and purpose and to display such a confidence in him and his word that circumstances and obstacles do not shake that conviction. That's 
God sometimes gives you a fight to do something, and no one else is with you. And you, you're convicted that it's of God, and you act on that conviction, and that faith and trust in God, and God does a marvelous thing. Sets up a new ministry, a sports ministry, maybe many, many years ago, and now it has 700 chaplains in the place. Someone says, I believe this is something God wants me to do. Or take Hudson Taylor, for example, the uh, British Protestant Christian missionary to China and founder of the China, China Inland Mission. He spent 51 years in China. I think he had the gift of faith. He founded and maintained one of the world's biggest missionary societies on a complete absence of financial backing, a refusal to ask for funds, and an unshakable conviction about the will of God. Most new ministries are started by people with a gift of faith. Missionaries, church planters, work amongst alcoholics, prison ministries, maybe setting up a new Chinese ministry like a Mandarin ministry. It takes a step of faith. People say, we believe that God is in this and we're going to act. It's not saving faith, but sometimes God gives people this faith to start new things or, or to go to another level of ministry. Thirdly, gifts of healings. To another, gifts of healings by that one spirit. We are talking now that God has said in his word that some people will have the gifts to bring healing through God and through the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, gifts is plural and so is healings. So it's gifts of healings, right? Different gifts, different healings. And so it suggests, suggests that possibly that there are different kinds of healings and not everyone was getting healed by that one person. Possibly only certain types of healings could be healed by that one person. It's interesting, Corinthians talks about people having gifts of healings, yet if you go to the book of James, you know who you're meant to go to, to pray for healing? The elders or the pastors of the church, which says, uh, go to those uh, pastors, your elders in your church, they'll anoint you with oil and pray over you that you may be healed. And so we as pastors here, if you wanted us to pray uh, for healing and seek God in that and trusting in God's mercy to bring healing, uh, we do anoint people with oil and pray for them, as uh, James tells us. God is, let me say this, God is healing people today, but not as often as what people tell you. Not as often as what some people will tell you. I was doing my Bible on Friday, and uh, Nikki Gumbel, uh, who's the leader, a charismatic Anglican, uh, leader of the Alpha Movement, Alpha Course, and there was a story of a woman who had been blind for a number of years and, um, and came in, went to an Alpha Course, and then in time people prayed over her, and all of a sudden she started to see again. Marvelous. God is good. God heals. I have a man in my home group who uh, 20 years ago had a serious cancer, they treated him and it kept growing, it was so aggressive it kept coming back. And then he organized his people in his church to pray, people around the world were praying, the network got out, pray for him, uh, for his healing. And then uh, he was arranging to go and have further surgery, went into the doctor. The doctor did, took the next scan and he went, you have no cancer. God healed him. He said, no, it's not like we just made it up. The doctor said, here is the scan beforehand. Here is the new scan. There is no cancer. And his Christian doctor said, well, the, the only answer we can have is that God in his mercy has brought healing 
to you and remove that cancer. He's alive today, now in his 60s, to tell that story, and he's in my home Bible study group, and he's part of the night congregation, and he has a love, a genuine love for Jesus. But friends, there have been also other situations, though, where people have claimed healing, and they haven't. Hank Hanegraaff, in his book, Christianity in Crisis, writes, when Christian groups have examined the so-called healings, especially at large rallies, revival meetings, and so on, that they've taken place, very few have been confirmed as real healings. Canon Michael Green, a charismatic Anglican, writes, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, and I think he gives a good, a good balance here. I know of a man who was used in healing only once in the course of a long ministry, but in answer to his prayer and the laying on of hands, the patient who had been told he must spend the rest of his life in bed immediately got up, was instantly and permanently healed. A miracle of God. In our own congregation, we have seen and frequently see physical, emotional and psychosomatic healings in response to prayer and anointing with oil and the laying on of hands. So they're putting into place what James is talking about. We do not have any member of the congregation who is a noted healer, but the gifts of healing take place as the congregation or small group pray in faith and expect God to act. He continues, there is no triumphalist doctrine of healing in our midst. We're all too acutely aware that God sometimes chooses to heal and sometimes does not. We teach a theology of suffering and its fruits as well as theology of healing. That is so important, I think, as we try to keep a balance of what the Bible has to say. Uh, David Watson, who was also a, a leading charismatic leader, died of cancer. John Wimber... <coughs> who was out preaching about healing and the power of God, died of a brain hemorrhage early on. This year, only a couple of months ago, the wife of one of the largest Pentecostal churches in the world, of the Bethel Church, Bill Johnson's wife died, Benny, at 67, from breast cancer. Now, you may ask, if you're cynical, if your pastor is the leading preacher, teacher on healing and deliverance ministry around the world at the moment. And we sing some of the Bethel songs, although we don't agree with their theology, some of their theology. Why did not your wife be healed? Why was not your wife healed, pastor? And sometimes it's only at the death of some significant leaders who preach about healing all the time that they then have to learn to moderate their teaching according to the scripture, that sometimes God or not sometimes, God is always sovereign, and God sometimes heals, but our ultimate healing comes when we are out of this broken world, fallen world, and we are with with Christ. At the sad situation a few years ago, uh, to see a young boy die at the age of 12 from cancer. Their brothers and sisters praying for him, other family members who are what we might call part of the Word of Faith movement, said, we've prayed, We claimed the healing, he's healed. The boy died. He was not healed at all. Dangerous. Only I was at a funeral on Friday and uh, speaking to one of the persons there. uh, We're in a church where uh, that sort of thing was taught all the time. You just got to believe, just got to believe. And if you don't get healed, it's because you lack faith. You lack faith. You You don't have enough faith and then you die. So we had to get out of there. It is a, I say this because it is a dangerous thing. I've seen it wreck, shipwreck the faith of many good people because they all their lives have been told, if you just have enough faith, your child will live and their child goes to be with Jesus. 
Let's consider Paul's experience for a moment. Uh, God gave him the grace to heal a crippled man in Lystra, Acts 14 verse 10. Many people in Ephesus, Acts 19 verse 12, so Paul was used by God to bring healing. The demonized girl in Philippi, Acts 16 verse 18. And Eutychus, his guy fell out of the window, hit the ground in Acts 20, and Paul went down and raised him from the dead. But Paul could not heal himself from the thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, or from the ailment that he had when he preached in Galatians, Galatians 4. Evidently, he could not heal Timothy from his stomach ailments. He said, have a little bit of wine to drink. Or Epaphroditus from his life-threatening sickness, Philippians 2, 26 and 27. Or Trophimus, whom he left ill in Miletus. Paul, why don't you just heal him, brother? Just pray in faith. Come, what are you leaving behind ill? So it's interesting, isn't it? At one point, God uses him to perform marvelous miracles and other times the normal brokenness of our world impacts Christians as well as non-Christians. Fourthly, uh, miraculous powers, literally workings of powers is the expression in uh, the fourth one. Probably it covers all kinds of supernatural activities beyond the healing of the sick. May include exorcisms and nature miracles. I don't know anyone who's performed a nature miracle. Maybe you do. But he says there'll be other miraculous powers uh, that some people will have, God's people. Five, uh, distinguishing between spirits. And I think this gift enables a person to distinguish demonic forces from the Holy Spirit. When someone says the Holy Spirit told me to do this, somebody says, well, I'm not quite sure about that. It's a distinguishing between spirits. Uh, sixthly, let's take a bit of time on this one and the next one and prophecy. Um, speaking in different kinds of tongues. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues and to still another, the interpretation of tongues. What is speaking in different kinds of tongues? We saw last week, just a reminder, in Acts uh, chapter 2, uh, or the previous week, that uh, they were speaking in other languages, human languages. But let's have a look. It is in spirit-inspired utterance. It's made explicit in 12, 12, 7, 11, and 14, verse 2. The other area, we haven't had a chance to read chapter 14 today, but that's uh, further teaching on uh, speaking in tongues and prophecy. They're the last two gifts I want to focus on. It is by the Spirit. The regulations for its use in 14, 27, and 28 make it clear that the speaker is not in ecstasy, in a trance or out of control. Uh, I was at a church uh, a few years ago following up some young people who got caught up in a church and there were, the one woman seemed to be in a trance, arms were moving forward and um, she was totally out of it. But here, if you have it, you can stop it, you can start it, right? You're told uh, if there's no interpreter, stop. So this clean 1427, you are not out of control, you're in control. It is, it is speech essentially unintelligible both to the speaker... 1414, and to the other hearers. So it's speech that no one knows. It is speech directly, basically, directed basically toward God in chapter 14, verse 2, 14, 15, and 28. It seems to be a prayer to God in another unlearned language. And then it's uh, the gift of interpretation is needed because it's unintelligible to the speaker and to the hearers. And therefore, uh, if you're going to use that gift in a public service, it says, you need to have someone to, who can interpret that, who has that gift of interpretation. With all of that, it gets quite messy, doesn't it? 
how to act on that and how do you know if it's the right one or, or not and so on. It said, if there is no interpreter, the person shall cease speaking, 1 Corinthians 14, 28. The question is, were the tongues in Corinth real languages or something else? So we know in Acts chapter 2 they were real languages. Right? But it seemed to be a little bit different here in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And Don Carson, an excellent New Testament scholar, writes, this is an extraordinarily difficult question to answer convincingly on either side, despite the dogmatic claims made by proponents on each side. Other languages or something else? One option is that they're actual human languages that had never been learnt. Xenoglossia. Xenos means a foreigner, like xenophobia, fear of foreigners, that's that word. Xenoglossia, that means it's a foreign tongue. Speaking an unlearned human language. That means I'm in the church gathering and I speak in Russian without ever having learnt Russian. And I declare the goodness of God in Russian and you're Russian, you think, oh, hallelujah, he speaks Russian. <laughs> and he's praising Jesus in Russian. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. But the other option is that they're real language, but not necessarily earthly. Glossolalia. Glossa means a tongue. Lalia just means to speak, to speak in another tongue. I think you'll find if you're attending a Pentecostal church, a charismatic church, or uh, of any form, that what they are doing is this, speaking in tongues, not human languages, but making sounds and babbles and sort of an unlearned language or a mixture of sounds. Um, We'll talk a little bit about that. But, and that's different to what was happening in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, it had an evangelistic purpose. Here it's for the benefit of the whole church when it is interpreted. An Anglican theologian says, Leon Morris says, utterances in no known language but under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You've got to ask, what makes it a language or a tongue or a language? If you say they're speaking in another tongue, right, and you may have friends who do that, and maybe you pray in tongues in your own personal prayer life, does it have to have a discernible linguistic structure? If it's a language, does it have cognitive content? Uh, is there a coherent scheme of grammar, syntax, and vocabulary? Because they all sound quite different to me when I've been with people praying in, in tongues. None of it seems to be consistent, uh, but certain sort of uh, sounds are made. Carson Packer say, yes, it must have some structure, otherwise it's not a language. Another writer, Blomberg, says, no, a tongue is broad enough to mean any audible vocalization. And research on speaking in tongues by linguists indicates that modern-day speaking in tongues is fundamentally not a language in spite of superficial similarities. And Michael Green, charismatic Anglican, says it's a sort of pseudo-language, a form of precognitive speech, which is not filtered through the mind's orderly arrangement of syntax and vocabulary. The debate goes on. I tend to think as I look at that, I think, see, Acts chapter 2 seems to be human languages. 12, chapter 12 and 14 Corinthians seems to be this glossolalia. It's, not, it's just a mixture of sounds and syllables that are made that somehow bring glory to God, somehow draw a person closer to God and somehow communicate with God in ways you don't understand. God does prefer in the gathered community, Paul says, it's better to speak in a language everyone understands 
although I've been to churches where someone would speak in, in a tongue and someone tried to interpret, it's interesting that even these days, the larger churches like Hillsong and Shire and so on, won't have any of those speaking in tongues in their public services now. When I grew up and uh, going, they would do that. But I think they've realised in time that just leads to further confusion and, and um, you, you can't be sure whether it's a really of gift of God, if you have the right interpretation. And so they leave that type of thing more to their small groups or, or other settings. So you go to Hillsong Church, it's just like us, right? We'll sing songs, they'll make announcements, take up our offering, they'll preach the Bible and they'll sing another song and they'll go home. But when I was growing up, <laughs> I mean, we went for an hour, another hour afterwards. You can't afford it because Hillsong got a service at 9, a service at 10.15, a service at 11.30. You don't have time to hang around for two and a half hours to a ministry time. And partly, let me suggest to you, they wanted to come across as much more normal and mainline Christian. That's why the name's been changed to Australian Christian Churches. <laughs> Took the whole Christian name <laughs> from Assemblies of God to try and bring a sense of normality. And they understand that some of these gifts can lead to tension and debate and so on in churches. My experience. Do I have the gift of tongues or not? If I told you I spoke in tongues, would your opinion of me change? Would you see me as more spiritual or less spiritual? So I won't tell you. <laughs> but what we need to remember, though, is it is not the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we saw last week. We receive the Spirit. We are baptized in the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit. Every believer gets that. Some people may receive the gift of tongues as the other gifts. Finally, the gift of prophecy. Just looking at my time here. Uh, what is prophecy? Well, in the Old Testament, prophets were inspired by God to bring a message to the people of God. And we're looking at Hosea. Remember the last series? God speaks through Hosea to say judgment is coming upon the nation. Judgment is coming. But also the judgment was also linked to what God said earlier in the Old Testament Deuteronomy. If you disobey me, I'll, I'll come in judgment upon you. So the prophet would bring God's word to bear on their situation and often predicts the future, what will happen in the future. But more than that, the Old Testament prophets included forthtelling, predicting future events, but more predominantly forthtelling, speaking to God's people about his will for their present circumstances, usually reminding them of God's already revealed word. Okay, that's the Old Testament. They speak God's word, a word that people need to hear from the word, but also looks at the future. Joel chapter 2, 28 to 30 says that in the future, all Christians will prophesy. Potentially available to all, Acts chapter 2. We will all now be filled with the Spirit, we will all prophesy. And there's a sense we all prophesy because we speak God's word, right? And if you know the word of God and you declare this word, you are prophesying, you'll bring God's word. But there's also a sense in which God gives some direct words consistent with his word for a situation or a, or uh, or the future of the church, or a direction in which the church should go. Thesis, it consisted of spontaneous, spirit-inspired, intelligible messages orally delivered in the gathered assembly, intended for the edification or encouragement of the people. Often taking God's word and applying it. I hope that when I am preaching, I'm not simply preaching or teaching, that I'm prophesying at the same time, because I'm allowing God's word to speak, to give us direction on how we live into the future preacher in the modern days is a bit of a teacher, a preacher, and a prophet. And some sermons are more prophetic. And so, guys, this, God is saying this for us. We need to move in this direction. 
Other times it's more like today. And let's get a grasp, if we can, on these gifts that sometimes we don't understand and we get confusion over. And sometimes it's the proclamation of the gospel and calling people to repentance. But these prophets, again, uh, they're in control, 14, 29 and 33. There may have been prophets who regularly uh, were used by God to proclaim God's truth. But if someone comes to you and says, I have a word from God, now this is practically what happens. What do you do with it? And they tell you something. I, I had a friend, uh, careful how I say this, who, who was not happy with a certain evangelical leader in Sydney because he thought he was a bit too negative on the charismatic renewal. And he received a word from God that this, unless this person repented, his ministry would end within a year. And I think there may have been something about dying also in that. I can't remember it correctly. You imagine you received that prophecy from one of your fellow ministers. Unless you repent, you will die or your ministry will come to an end within a year. It's hard to process, isn't it? This man's ministry didn't end within that year, continued for many years, continues still today, and he didn't die. This friend of mine was a false prophet. Because he believed he had this thing from God. And sometimes you've got to be careful because uh, I remember people in a more uh, less serious, you know, someone would come up to someone and say, well, I believe that uh, we're made for each other. I believe that God has told me that we will get married one day. And maybe you see that and you think, well, I've been waiting for you to say that for a long time. <laughs> you guys are so slow. Uh, or maybe you think, well, thank you for that. When God tells me, I'll let you know. <laughs> and so often we just say, well, when God tells me, I'll let you know. Because it's almost like claiming to be of God and you don't want to argue against someone who said, God told me, right? But yes, you can argue against that. Four tests of prophecy. The test of Scripture. Does it agree with Scripture? If someone brings you a word from God and you think, well, the word of God is completely saying something different to that. No, I'm not going there. Your prophecy is false. Secondly, the test of life. Is the person a godly, mature Christian? Is he trustworthy? Is she trustworthy? Do they normally come out with godly things? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Matthew 7, 15 to 16. Thirdly, the test of resonance. When a prophetic word is given, it's not simply the person who brings the word. The person who receives the word has a sense of this is of God. This is of God. The test of resonance. You take, uh, remember King David in the Old Testament who, what did he do? He slept with Bathsheba, had her husband Uriah set up to be killed, Bathsheba home as his wife. When the prophet Nathan came to him and told him what he had done, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You're right. The word comes from God and you recognize this is definitely from God. I need to act on this. And then the test of fulfillment. If the prophecy foretells what is going to happen in the future, then time will tell if the prophet is correct, as took place in those situations with my friends. Now, during the American uh, last election, what happened about Donald Trump? There are many 
let me say carefully, crazy prophets in America. They're, they're strong movements and everyone's prophesying about something. Many of them prophesied that Donald Trump would be the new president. And after he wasn't elected president, some of them had to uh, eat humble pie. Some refused to acknowledge they're wrong. He was elected, just the nation didn't put him in place. Well, others have now confessed and said, I was wrong. And I've read some of those, those testimonies and they said, I believed it was God, but clearly I was wrong and I want to confess that I make a mistake. I will no longer bring any prophecies for a period of time until I come have counsel and so on. Yeah. A, fr a friend at a previous church, uh, again, um, been told by our pastor in a Baptist church uh, some 30 years ago now, uh, she had cancer. We didn't didn't seem to have long to live, uh, but he prayed for her and anointed her with oil and said, you have been healed. Go live as if you're healed, sister. I was at her funeral a little while later, and the pastor got up and said, oh, well, she had a measure of healing. She had no measure of healing, she's dead. Stop playing games with people's lives and people's hearts and people's emotions and, and, and the truth of God's word. What he should have said, I trusted believing that God would heal her, but I was wrong. God did not heal her. Own up to it. I had another friend uh, preaching at a church. The church was considering a new pastor. A man stopped him in the middle of the service. I'm glad it doesn't happen here. He got up and said, sorry, stop, pastor, preacher. I have a word from God. He got up. What's your word? He said, I know the name of the new pastor. He said, say nothing. He said, take out a piece of paper and a pen, write down the name of the new pastor, put it in an envelope. Don't open it. Hand it in. After we call the new pastor, we'll see. They call the new pastor. They open up his envelope. Different name. False. You're a false prophet. The man said, no, I'm not a false prophet. It's the name of the next pastor. I was just a bit early. It's laughable and heartbreaking at the same time. We must be very careful because we're dealing with God's word, we're dealing with God's truth, we're dealing with the lives of people. Sometimes we pick up the shipwrecked lives because people have been pushing a certain agenda in their church all their lives and they said, it just doesn't work. I trust in God, but it doesn't work. And they walk away from God rather than getting, as some of my other charismatic Anglican friends have that balanced teaching perspective, which I think is a much more helpful way. Friends, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. May God enable us to use His gifts for the common good and for the glory of His name. Amen.